We have learned a lot, I pray, these past few weeks in this sermon series on the book of Colossians. Today we'll conclude the sermon series. I want to begin by thinking about people's last words. Back in 1988, basketball great Pistol Pete Maravich died playing a pickup basketball game in a gym. But did you know that he was actually playing pickup basketball with Dr. James Dobson? Pete Maravich had flown from his home there in Louisiana out to Colorado to film a radio show with Dr. Dobson. And they were playing some basketball in the gym. And Dobson says about a minute before Pete Maravich dropped dead, he said these words. He said, I feel great. When Harriet Tubman died, she gathered together her family and they sang together. And the last words that she said were, swing low, sweet chariot. The great Leonardo da Vinci, who accomplished so much in his life, these were the last words that he said. He said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. (laughs) Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, the great composer, before he died, his last words were, I feel something that is not of this earth. And our Lord Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Our last words are usually very important words. What we find today in chapter 4 are Paul's last words to the church there in Colossae. We're not certain if Paul was ever able to see them in person. We're not certain if Paul made any other written correspondence to them. For all that we know, these are his last words to them. So we should pay attention to them. I'm going to focus on the first five verses, Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and unpack quite a few lessons that we learn from these verses. Then I'll end the chapter by looking at the last section of the chapter and give some more lessons that we can apply to our lives. I've entitled today's sermon, Final Words, Instructions for Life. Final words, instructions for life. Look with me now, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear Excuse me, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the Word of God. Paul's final words instruction for life. I want to ask three questions of these first five verses, and let the answers to these questions come straight from the text. 
First question is, how are we supposed to pray? I think every Christian would admit that prayer and Bible study are the two most important spiritual disciplines. So how are we supposed to pray? Colossians 4.2 tells us, look there again, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's how we are supposed to pray. Most translations don't say continue steadfastly in prayer. Most translations actually say devote yourselves to prayer. We learn that we are to be faithful. Faithful in our prayers. Faithful. That's what we learn from this verse. There's really three things from this verse. Faithful in our prayers. To be faithful is to continue in something. When someone is faithful, they always show up. They're consistent. They're committed. They're loyal. They're faithful. They're continuing steadfast in something. This is how we are to be in our prayers. The Amplified Bible, that unique translation of the Bible, takes verse 4-2 this way. Be persistent and devoted in prayer. Be persistent and devoted to prayer. We see this in the life of Jesus. He had many things to do in his ministry when it began. His three-year ministry consisted of him constantly teaching, working with his disciples, healing the sick. He was a busy person, yet we know the Bible says that he, one gospel writer says, as was his custom, Jesus would often withdraw to a quiet and solitary place. Why? To pray. He was faithful to pray. Our Lord Jesus made time for prayer. We are to be faithful in our prayer life. But also, we're to be watchful. We're to be watchful in our prayers. This word watchful, I'm going to read now from the uh, Amplified Bible. It begins, verse 2, be persistent and devoted to prayer. And then it says, being alert and focused in your prayer life. That's what it means to be watchful. You are alert and you are focused. Now, Friday night was the last uh, football game for LaGrange High School this year. And, and we've got three young men in our neighborhood that can't drive yet that all play in the LaGrange marching band. It was an out-of-town game. And so the last time, the week before we had an out-of-town game, our son uh, did not get home until after midnight. And so it was my duty on Friday night to um, go and pick up um, the guys in our neighborhood. It's Carson, my son, and two other friends in the neighborhood. And so we kind of do a carpool with the other parents. And so it was my turn to do that. So I, it wasn't even 1130 yet. And the week before, it, he didn't get home until like after 12, midnight. And so I, I wasn't really paying attention uh, to my phone. 
right? And so apparently my son had sent me two or three text messages. Hey, hey, dad, we're at the exit. Hey, hey, dad, we're almost at the high school. And then finally he calls me and he says, dad, are you here? I'm like, no, I'm on the couch. <laughs> and so I had to quickly get in my car and get up there, didn't speed, and got there to pick those two guys up so I could get them back to their families, back to their parents. I was not being watchful. I was not being alert. Many times we're that way in prayer. We're distracted. We're not focused. We've got to be watchful in prayer and faithful in prayer. But also we're to be thankful in our prayers. Thankful in our prayers. It's something how the Bible consistently will use this idea of thanksgiving being part of our prayer life. That's how verse 2 ends. Colossians 4 or 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. I said a few weeks ago, thanksgiving will change the atmosphere of your life. It will change your heart. It will change your mind. When thanksgiving, you incorporate it into your prayers, into your life. We find in another letter that Paul wrote while in prison, the same Roman prison. He wrote to the church in Philippi, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. This is the antidote for worry and anxiety in Philippians 4, 6. And the promise is given in verse 7 that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we're to be thankful in our prayers. Do your prayers consist of thanksgiving? If not, they need to. Because when thanksgiving comes into your heart, it sets your heart in a posture of proper giving glory to God and proper perspective. We're to be watchful. We're to be faithful. We're to be thankful in our prayers. This is how we are to pray. But what are we supposed to pray? What? It's something when you look at the life of Jesus... And you see the many questions his disciples asked him. But this was a question, the burning question that they wanted to know. And they could have asked him any number of questions besides this question. They could have said, Lord, would you teach us how to heal? We see what you do in touching people, even speaking the word, and people are healed. Lord, would you teach us how to do that? Lord, would you teach us how to, 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 to always know how to have the right words to say at the right time? I mean, Peter should be, have been asking Jesus, Lord, Lord, how can I not have chronic foot-in-the-mouth disease? How can I learn how to say the right word at the right time, Jesus? But they could have said, Lord, would you teach us how you can tell stories and mesmerize the crowd and hold their attention. Teach us, Jesus, how that you can stand up to these so powerfully religious people and not be afraid of them. I mean, there's so many things they probably asked him, but what's recorded in the Bible is one important thing is, Lord, teach us how to pray. There is something about the way that Jesus prayed that made the disciples say, Lord, just teach us how to pray. So what are we supposed to pray? Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4. He tells us the what of our prayers. At the same time, Paul says, pray also for us. 
So he's given them instruction on how they're to pray. Now he says, I want y'all to pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We learn from Paul that it's definitely good and right to ask people to pray for us. It's okay to say, would you please pray for me? But it's the thing that Paul is asking them to pray for that we should take note of. We're to pray, church, kingdom-minded prayers. It's not that we should not bring to God our cares, our concerns, our worries, our struggles. That certainly is part of prayer. But if that is all we're bringing to God in prayer, then we're not praying kingdom-minded prayers. What did Jesus say in that great model prayer that he taught his disciples? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He focuses on who God is in his prayer. He starts by, Father, holy is your name. Then he says, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, disciples, your prayers are to be about the kingdom of God, the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. Many times our prayers stop with just our own worries and concerns. And that's a spiritual immaturity issue that should change in our prayer life. Our prayers should be, yes, about what's on our hearts. Certainly, if you can't focus on the kingdom of God going forth because of that burden on your heart, pour your heart out to God, yes. But don't stop there. Keep going. Be faithful, watchful, thankful, and pray kingdom-minded prayers, church. That will change the world. Paul shows us. What's an example of a kingdom-minded prayer? We're, 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 we're to pray for an open door to share the gospel. Every day, we should be praying, God, would you open a door for me to share the gospel? That's a great thing to pray because it's you saying and me saying, Lord, I need you to open the door. Spirit of God, I need you to, to set the door open for me to do your pre-work before I even speak the word because I'm going to mess it up. I'm, I don't know what to say. And it's a humility kind of thing. It's a humble posture. Lord, open a door that I might share the gospel. I love how Revelation chapter 3 where the Lord is writing, speaking to those seven churches, to the church in Philadelphia. The Lord says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I believe in divine appointments, divine conversations that God can give each one of us if we simply ask Him, Lord, give me an open door to share the gospel. Pray that prayer and watch what God does this week. Another kingdom-minded prayer is that we're to pray that we make the gospel clear to others. That we make the gospel clear to others. The fact that Paul asked the church to pray that he might make the gospel clear to others is Paul's admitting that it's possible, sometimes probable, that we as followers of Jesus will muddy the gospel. That will maybe combine the law with the gospel. Or will maybe leave out important aspects of the gospel like 
repentance, which is a huge part of the preaching of the gospel. And so we should be asking, God, help me to make the gospel clear. It's one thing to know what the gospel is, but when we share it with people, we should say, Lord, help me to make it clear. Many times when I prepare a sermon in my prayer life before I preach, I say, Lord, would you just take the words out of my mouth and make them clear that people can understand what you want to say through me. All of us are to make the gospel clear with how we speak about our Lord Jesus. Those are kingdom-minded prayers. Not just to pray for yourself, but to pray for others. To pray for your children. To pray for your spouse. To pray for your neighbors that you know are followers of Jesus. Lord, give that businessman, give that businesswoman an open door for the gospel with their co-workers. Lord, give them the ability to make the gospel clear to others. These are kingdom-minded prayers. And this is what we are pray. How? We're to pray prayers that are watchful, thankful, faithful, kingdom-minded prayers, asking for open doors to share the gospel, praying that we make the gospel clear to others, but also more instructions given to us in these verses. What are we supposed to say and do in our lives? What are we supposed to say? What am I supposed to be doing as a Christian? These instructions tell us. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Such wisdom in these words. We're first, we're to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Of course we should have wisdom with one another as followers of Jesus. But Paul is very specific here that we're to have wisdom with those who are outside of the faith. Those who don't know Jesus Christ yet. We're to have wisdom with them. We're to walk in a manner that we're mindful of what we're saying and how we're living. And we should ask that question about our church. How accessible are we to the world around us? Are we mindful of the mindset of an outsider who perhaps is seeking the things of God? Are we operating in such a way as a church that we are mindful with wisdom toward those who are outside. Jesus is this way. We see this with our Lord. He goes to Samaria and he goes to a well and there is a Samaritan woman at that well and Jesus is able to answer her questions ask her questions and even confront her sin and have a conversation with her about real worship. He, it's marvelous the way that he relates to her as an outsider. And she becomes an insider. And she becomes a witness for Jesus to her entire village because Jesus knew what he was doing with that outsider. We see Jesus being so mindful of the outsider in that story, that, that Striking story in the Gospels. 
when Jesus did not seem to care as much about those on the inside in the temple who were making a lot of money off of people in the court of the Gentiles of the temple. See, the court of the Gentiles was the only place for the outsider who was wanting to know more about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a place for the outsider, and it had become not a place of prayer as it was intended to be, but it had become a den of robbers. And Jesus does something so uncharacteristic that we see him overturn those money changers and drive them out of the temple. Why would he be so hard? Why would he be so harsh? Because he was dealing with insiders who were taking advantage who are being lazy, who are making the temple into a place of commerce instead of this being a place for the nations to come and pray to the Father. You see, Jesus was always mindful of the outsider, and so must we be. We're also, from these verses, to make the best use of the time given to us. Time is the great equalizer. Time is something that every person on this earth each day has the same amount of, of course, unless that person perishes, unless they die. But if we live a normal day, all of us have the same amount of time. We have folks here, different amounts of money, live in different parts of town. We have different races in our world, all these different things, yet time is what we have in common. Lord, would you help me to make the best use of my time? As, as Moses writes in Psalm 90:12, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. I had a mentor years ago in ministry, a guy named Jack, at, that asked me to take an entire week and do a time log. You ever tried that? At the end of the day, you sit down and you map out all that you've done that day. It's eye-opening to realize how much that we do that's not effective in maximizing God's kingdom or maybe even improving our family or our home, that we often don't make the best use of our time. Paul says, do that, not just here in Colossians 4, verse 5, but also in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days were evil then and the days are evil now. Church, we're to make the best use of the time that God has given to us because we don't know if we even have time tomorrow. Let's make the best use of it. These are words of instruction, words for our lives. We also learn from these verses, our speech is always to be gracious. Our speech is always to be gracious. You know, I had a, a campus minister who was incredible. He, he did, my wife, he did our pre-marriage counseling, he did our wedding years ago. And he was my campus pastor for four years when I was in college. And he... I mean, I was a knucklehead like a lot of college kids and made some mistakes, even in leadership, and I had to get called to the carpet for things. But he had a way of sitting you down in his office and rebuking you, and you felt really bad for how you messed up, 
But he did it with such a way that his speech was somehow seasoned with grace. I just knew he loved me. I knew he wanted the best for me. And I trusted him. His speech was, was seasoned with salt. He spoke with grace. I thank God for Eddie Garner in my life. Our speech is to be like this. Seasoned with salt. Look, I love eggs in the morning with fresh ground pepper. And I don't put salt on most of my food because most food is salty anyway with, with the cans and things that we put in our food. Yet, I like salt on my eggs. It gives it flavor. Makes it enjoyable to eat them. And our speech is to be seasoned with salt. And that seasoning is grace. And whatever comes out of our mouth, as Ephesians 4, 29 says, it's not to be unwholesome speech, but speech that builds others up, that fits the occasion, that gives grace to all who hear. We're to make the best use of our time, have wisdom toward those on the outside, have gracious speech, but we're, we also, next, need to be prepared to know how to answer each and every person. That's what we find at the end of verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Cade, pastor, that is hard. Have you, have you ever met people? Yeah, I know people. I'm looking at people right now. How am I going to answer each and every person? How do I know what to say? Keep in mind that this command about answering each person so that... That phrase, so that, leads us back to the steps in verse 2. If we are faithful in prayer, if we're watchful in prayer, if we're thankful in prayer, if we're praying kingdom-minded prayers, if we're praying for open doors for the gospel, if we're praying that we might make the gospel clear how we speak, if we're walking in wisdom toward outsiders, if we're making the best use of the time given to us, if we're letting our speech be seasoned with grace, then we will know more how to answer each and every person. It all ties together. Do you see it? 1 Peter 3.15. Peter says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. You cannot pray and live in the ways that the Bible is telling us to do in these verses without setting Jesus Christ apart as the Lord of your life. When he is the Lord of your life, calling the shots, he is then filling you with his spirit who will give you the words to say. Jesus even tells his disciples in John's gospel, you will know when you're brought before those in a power that is basically to have to give a defense of the gospel. The Spirit of God will give you the words to say. The Spirit will give us the words to say if we walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Just look at the life of Jesus. I mean, it's remarkable what he said to the woman caught in adultery. They were going to stone her to death. And Jesus says, let the he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then in that moment, Jesus has such grace in his speech, yet he's also very direct. 
He says, where are your condemners? And she's like, they're, they're not here. Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. What an incredible response. He didn't just say, you're forgiven. Now go back to your old life. He says, no, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of how he knew how to answer each and every person. Pontius Pilate was just having his way with Jesus, talking and talking and talking before he would go to the cross. Jesus knew exactly how to answer him, exactly how to answer the high priest. He always knew because he was in perfect fellowship with his father. We must walk with God in prayer, and we'll know how to answer each person. Now let's turn our attention now to the last verses, Paul's final words of this chapter. Look at verses 7 through 18. I'm going to read these verses and quickly comment about them. We find in verse 7, this is a list of a lot of names that Paul gives us. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision. That means they were Jewish followers of Jesus. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Here's Epaphras praying kingdom-minded prayers. Pray that God will make people mature, that they'll stand fully in the will of God. What a great prayer. Verse 13. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician. This is Luke. This is Luke of the Gospel of Luke. The beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Last verse. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Quickly, what we learn from Paul's final words. Paul's final words reveal that people matter. People matter. Paul shows this. He says all of these names and he has relationships with all of these people. He knows their spiritual conditions. He's invested into their lives. People matter more than programs. People matter more than buildings. People matter. Period. We're to be people, people as the church of Jesus Christ with love for people. Paul shows us that. The greatest theologian of all time, the Apostle Paul, besides Jesus, obviously. The great missionary, the great Apostle Paul shows us that he was a people person. People matter. Paul's final words revealed to us that sister churches matter. He's like, make sure this letter that I'm writing to you, that you read it at the church of Laodicea. 
and go to Nympha, her little house church. Make sure it's read. Make sure the letter from Laodicea is also read. They've got stuff to say to us. Our sister churches matter. How they are doing matters. How we are doing to them should matter. We're all on a team. Other Christians around us matter. Paul's final words reveal to us that our chains do not have to bind us. Paul Paul never goes on and on about himself. He doesn't. In his letters, very selfless, Christ-centered man, he simply says, would you remember my chains? Paul knew he was being held back. He felt limited. Yet in these moments, Paul is using these months in prison and he's writing letters that are going to benefit billions of Christians years later. Your chains do not have to bind you. Jesus Christ has come to set the captive free. Whosoever Christ Jesus has set free, he is free indeed. But pastor, my health, pastor, my money, pastor, my situation, your chains are an opportunity for Jesus to make you more than a conqueror, to shine his light through your pain, through your chains, through your suffering. Our chains do not have to bind us. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a chain breaker. And lastly, Paul's final words reveal that God's grace is the final word. And I'm so thankful that God's grace is the final word. He begins his letter to the church, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And he ends his letter, grace be with you. That's our only hope, church, that God's grace be with us. John Newton had it right. He was a man who was a slave trader. And Jesus transformed his life. And he wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace. And he says in that hymn, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Grace is God's final word. And we're not saved by works. We're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross, risen from the dead, coming back to judge the earth. He is our living hope, and grace is God's final word. Amen? And it's good that grace is his final word for us and to us. And it's Paul's final word to these believers. Grace be with you. Oh, may the grace of God be with you, First Baptist. May you walk in the power of the all-sufficient grace of God. Father, I pray now that we would take these words to heart, that we would apply these instructions for our lives, that it would revolutionize our prayer lives, the way we live our lives. God, open doors for us to share the good news of Jesus. Help us to always remember, that God, that people matter the most. And God, our other believers in Christ around the world, they matter. Help us, God, not to be limited, but to walk as wise with speech that is seasoned with grace. Let us fulfill the call for our church to make disciples of all nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.